listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. In part two of this podcast with Mikhail Munzing from Snap, we talk about going from the edge of financial ruin to the heights of success. From the hits, the label, the music video and production company, until his surprising and latest business interest. But first, if you'd like to support the podcast, please go to my steady page, Easy to find on Google. Just type in Pop the History Makers and SteadyHQ.com or just follow me on Instagram, Steve.Blame. We had this experience when in 1992 when Rhythm as a Dancer was everywhere in the world uh, a big hit. It was a number one hit. We had already 20 weeks number one in Germany. And we came to, because we were in the BMG family, they brought us to Arista to to London. And so we went to the office there and there was some guy sitting and uh, he asked us, he said, yeah, this song is not bad, but we need remixes. And we said, okay, we don't think that you need remixes because the original is already approved. It runs everywhere. And uh, he said, yes, but I want, so he, he came up with uh, certain artists and we say, okay, do it. So he, he did the remixes. We heard the remixes. We said, but the fuck so we said what a shit you know this is they, they, it, it, this is the problem when some remixers want to uh, put their ego in in other people's music you know i did as a remixer always i served the record i have to remix so i was always be careful that i'm not killing the vibes and everything so whatever the, the record uh, they, they had their mixes we said okay you can take this this and then they show us the track listing. At this time, it was vinyl. So it had an A, a B side. And we had an A on the B side. And, and the A side was the remix. And on the B side was the original. And we said, this is not going to happen. The original will be on the A side. And the remix will be on the B side. And it started a really big discussion. You know, it, 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 was, it was going on for, I don't know, two, three weeks. And they, would, they, they did not want to release the record. So at the end, we wrote a, 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 a fax. No, it was a telex at this time, whatever. And we said, if they're not releasing the record like we want it, we will go to another record company. You know, and okay. So uh, under pressure, they released and it became the most selling record in 1992 in the UK. You know, and this is what I said. This is, this is music business. You know, I people... Just- yeah, sorry, sorry. I'll just take you back to to Logic Records because we're jumping a bit. But I want the Logic Records where you work with different artists. Even at that point, for me, when I, when uh, we knew each other back then, and I used to come up over to to Frankfurt and uh, hang out for want of a better word. Yeah, we had some nice Italian <laughs> and, <laughs> restaurant. Oh, exactly. <laughs> but um, one of the things that really. Uh, it made me think of, and I interviewed Martin Ware the other day from Heaven 17. And you remember the British Electric Foundation in 82, I think it was, and where uh, he bought a load of artists together and they sang the songs that he and his partner back then produced for British Electric Foundation. Um, and for me, Logic Records was a little bit, had a little bit of that in a way, that there, there was you and Luca as the, the centre, the focus, the producers, and there were all these artists either hanging around, you know, Moses was <laughs> was there, Moses P. Uh, was Rico Sparks there as well, I think? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, and then, of course, the other, the, the other people that the record company 
uh, brought in or they wanted to work with you. And it also, it had a little bit of that feeling to it that actually there were you as the focus of making the music and then these people on the periphery who were the, who were the artists. And it was a very sort of collaborative um, atmosphere. And it felt like that BEF record for me. Did you, were you a fan of Heaven 17? Was this something oh, yes. that you got from oh, there? Oh, my God. It is, uh, I mean, Let Me Go was one of my favorite tracks I played in the club. People were freaking out. And it's still, it's still one of these uh, perfect records. I, I always say that there's a 10, 20 records out there, so perfect. Everything is, is that everybody hears the song, likes it, and wants to hear it again. You know, and uh, I, I played it to my son, son, and he also liked it immediately. And it's a song, it's 30 years old. You know, so this is what I say, music is timeless. If it's, if it's written good, if it's perfect, it's songs like Sweet Dreams, let's say, for example. Yes, yeah. or The Power. I mean, yeah. let, I know that's, that's before Rhythm is a Dancer, obviously, and that was like your international breakthrough. It's also probably the most financially successful record uh, uh, that you made. I mean, it was a, 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 an amazing hit. It's something that grabs you immediately. Can you remember the making of that record? How difficult was that to make? We, we had fun, believe me. Most of the time we had fun doing music. You know, so no, the, the, the thing is that um, in 89, we were producing a lot of music for Logic Records. So we did for our, own, for our own label. So people from the house came to us and said, oh, we have this band here. Don't you want to make a record for them? And so suddenly we find ourselves look at me as creative producers, as songwriters in a position that we did music for other people and we had to work with them. And we, you know, we, as, a, as a creative producer, you have to influence, you know, what, you know, this is what people want from you, that you bring your influence and your vibes to the music. So on one day, look at me, we were sitting together and we said, we are done. And uh, Matthias came to us and he had a new band and a new thing. We said, no. Matthias Martinson was the manager of Logic Records. Yes, yes. Clear yes that you up. know yes. Matthias. Yes. <laughs> so he came and he said, oh, I have this band here. And we said, you know what? We will not do for a couple of months music for Logic anymore. We want to do our own music. We have to go back where we come from. And so we said, nobody comes here to the studio. Nobody rings the phone. We want just to be shut off from you guys. And in one week, we made the power. This was, this was so, uh, I think, so powerful because we could go back in the studio. We were, you know, completely uh, isolated from everybody else. What brought also problems because you suddenly need a, a voice and where you get it from. You cannot open a closet in the studio that there's a, there's a singer say, come out. So we, we used sampling completely for the record because this was the only way to to do to finish the work uh, how we had the vision and uh, at the end after one week later the record was finished and we played it and I mean don't forget if you do a record in one week you still have heard it a few thousand times every day every day and I remember friends of us was in the studio and we did the guitar this da 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 Da, 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 da. And we played it, and we played it, and we played it, and they freaked out. They said to us, "What are you doing?" Like I said, they said, "We adjust this this guitar because this is the most important part. It has to be perfect." 
It has to be like you hear it for the first time and you said, yes, that's it. This is, this is how, how it has to be. And when we were finished, we, we gave us five <laughs> and we said, wow, if we're selling 10,000 records of this thing, we are world champions. <laughs> you know, and uh, I remember we came to London, and at this time, Dave Darrell, he was number one with uh, Pump Up the Volume, and we gave him the records, and he said, can you give me more? And we gave him 10, 10 records, and he brought it to some DJs, and I think three or four day, day, days later, we were in the breakout charts without having anything, you know, and we said, oh my God, we need to, we need to have a deal. We need to, to make a video and everything. So, so on, the, on those records at the time, you mentioned samples. I know there were three, no, you know, sort of well-known samples on that record. You hadn't cleared them at that point, had you? You'd, you'd made them no. and no. just put them in. I, no, I know it's not a moral judgment. It's just that this is. No, we, we had, we hadn't cleared nothing. We, because we, we, we just wanted to make music and we want to cre create something. And when the record came out, we find out, oh, we are in trouble. We have used so much samples. So first we took off a lot of samples. It, it, so don't forget, we worked with white labels at the beginning. So it was not an official release. We, we manufactured about 5,000 white, white labels and they contained a lot of uncleared samples. But when, in, in meanwhile, when we find out the record will be, a big hit. We said, okay, we have to take off a lot of these samples and we have to clear the power. You know, so at the end we, we could clear everything and we had to give away a lot of shares for this. But uh, like I said, it, it is still uh, power is still uh, one of the most um, used records for advertising. You know, and we didn't know that when we did this at this time. You know, so it's, it's used every day for some commercials around the world. Because everybody wants the power. <laughs> you know? in, in the 90s, um, you were involved in The Omen, weren't you? Wasn't it you, Matthias and Sven yes. were the owners of, of The Omen? Yes. Now, The Omen was, you know, the forerunner club of uh, techno in yes. Germany. Um, so, it's a, you know, there's a, you've been involved in creating music that's an absolute worldwide success and you've been involved in a, in a club which is historically in Germany one of the most famous clubs. Certainly it was really the centre of, of techno for Germany. How did that come about and how important do you think that club was for generating the feeling around this music? Um, I think it was kind of important, I think also for Sven to find his path uh, it was uh, 1989. I mean, it was some kind of uh, chikimiki club, we called it. You know, it was called the Vogue. And we went there. And uh, one day the owner asked me and said, listen, you know Sven, you're a friend of them. Can you not ask him if he wants to DJ here? I will pay him a lot of money. And he said, yeah, because when Sven is DJing, all the teenagers are coming, all the girls are coming and blah, blah. So we managed it and Sven uh, spent there. And one day he said, don't you want to become partner of the club? And we said, okay, we become partner. And we, so we did, uh, we ripped out everything from, from the club. We had some construction party, what was legendary, you know? And so we changed a lot of things. And in the beginning, there was a complete other music. 
it was there was some kind of garage music like that, that we we even played milli vanilli at this time there you know songs like that in the beginning uh, end of the 80s you know and one day the first um, techno records came out and Sven brought them and we liked them. And I was starting also after 10 years to, to, to DJ again in the club because it was really, for DJ, it was the best place. They, they celebrate, you really feel like the king. And I mean, everybody was playing in this club from Carl Cox to Richie Horton and Paul Van Dyk. Everybody was playing in the Omen and they all wanted to play there. Because they started their career at this time. And if somebody was just coming to the club and he saw what it was going on, he wants DJ there. So one day we sit together and Sven said, don't we want to make a techno Friday? We said, yeah, let's do it. So we did one day and we just played techno and it was super successful. And so we made another one and another one. And one day Sven came and he said, I think we should turn the whole place into techno and without Sven this will not happen because I was a little bit worried about and I said I don't know if we really go now and we change everything you know but then we made a decision let's do it and it became a mecca you know what I mean people came from France Belgium from everywhere from Greece just to come into this club and it was every night it was a super party Sometimes, and don't forget, we, we did not have an air conditioning there. We had some air ventilation, but it was a small place and you was there. And when you went in as a boy, you could put, put off your T-shirt, you know, because after five minutes, it was a sauna. It was so hot inside that we sometimes uh, c- c- called the waiters and we say, throw ice in the dance floor. You know, and they just came with the ice cups and, and throwed it in the dance floor. But um, people wanted to go there. It was, I think it was a kind of uh, the same thing what I, you know, lived when Dorian Gray started and, and uh, disco music started. It, this was for these people when they came into techno music. It was completely new and it was a music for this generation. You know, so we run the club for, I, I played the power, by the way, and I turned it a little bit faster. After I played it, I find out the song is a little bit too slow. So I turned it quicker, three, four beats, but, you know, it was helpful. And, um, yeah, we, the club was exactly 10 years open. We decided to close it after 10 years, you know, what a lot of people never understand, but we said, Come on, we had 10 years fun. Let's close it. Let's just make a legend out of this place, you know, if we close it. And yeah, still today you have a lot of websites and fan sites from the Omen, you know, it's, it's still there. Yeah, I remember, I mean, I used to fly there from London, as you know, yeah. <laughs> and uh, go there and then end up on the, the, probably the next night at Dorian Gray or whatever. But I mean, you know, some Sven's birthday, I remember, I think I was in that club for 20 six hours in yes. a nightclub and yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was the most amazing experience and it was something so different and so fantastic and I'd experienced like the Danny Rampling Club in London um Shoom and I'd experienced other you know uh, being in New York and things but this for me was for me sort of my moment and in you the- remember how the crowd screamed almost 
every second record they screamed they was having party and that's why i said as a dj this was the zenith you could not go further this was the best place you could dj because you you was they celebrated you all over the night you know and i remember sometimes i i swapped with sven we had a friday so i played two hours and he played two hours or something and it was constantly really buzzing on the highest level this is really crazy you know and i never had something like this in my life You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. How did success change you? I mean, you weren't, let's say, as a DJ, you're a front person, but as a producer, you're not a front person. And many stars uh, want to be successful and recognized, yet you and Luca were quite content, what I remember, of being in the background. But did yes. success and financial success change you no i think it did not change me because um it changed the life but not the personality you know not my personality so i i never wanted to be in the in the you know ramp or on the on the stage or something i really did not like it and i was very happy that that we were not really in the focus of medias and everything so that a lot of people didn't know who we are or something and it, it i could live my life i could go everywhere i moved to ibiza in in the 90s i bought a house there and i really had a great time and um so i think you 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 uh, money brings yeah freedom like i said and it makes you independent you know but uh, yeah i think uh, it did not really change me um logic records was sold at a certain point and you moved on and it was in the mid i think it was 96 where you started this uh motion graphic company to make videos and to continue making music and you you sold logic records and you moved into this new era it was the mid 90s which was at the same time as being the absolute pinnacle of mtv and the video you know yes. where videos cost an absolute fortune and that was the moment um it was also the beginning and the end of the video and you went into that area so can you tell me about that process and what your goals were at that time and how they panned out Okay I mean we were always fascinated by by technique so when when 3D animation came out and the very first 3D animated computers we were really fascinated about the opportunities and the possibilities we could have so the the third album welcome to tomorrow was very driven by a computer animation and this was the the the, the video for, for welcome to tomorrow was done with the motion camera because we could do suddenly things and then the the advertising industry find out we have this camera crane and they gave, gave us a lot of jobs to do uh, advertising commercials or whatever with this crane but i think uh we bought the first the first big silicon graphics 3d computer what was looking like a fridge cost us 1 million german marks you know nobody could believe that you come in a in a in a office and there is a box standing you know it's blue and black 
and it has these ventilators inside and it cost 1 million. Nobody could believe that. And on the other side, the, the, the move, moving from 3D was so fast that maybe six months later, seven months later, we had a machine, let's say quarter of a size, quarter of a price, and it did 10 times more. <laughs> you know, this is the way it worked. But um, it, it was also for us a step. I mean, we, we opened a new record label at this time. We, we were focused more on video production. We had our own video team. I don't know if you remember Angel. Uh, he did all the videos. We, we did videos for the Fantastic Four, the very first video we did. We did for a lot of people videos. And um, it, it yeah, like I said, we, we became more like... A, um, yeah, like a multi-media uh, uh, company, you know, in this time. And it ended up that we went public with the company in 2000. So we went to the chairman stock market. We went public with this company. It was a big challenge, but we did it at the end. And so it became a really, really big company. And we did movies and TV shows in America, but the fun was going away. You know how it is. It was suddenly something you did not want when you started it, you know. So we stepped out in 2003 of the company and we turned and we said, okay, we, we have to go. We have to find something new. And what did you find? Uh, crypto. Cryptocurrency. In, I started in 2011. Mine with my Macintosh computer at home, the first Bitcoin. And uh, I was absolutely fascinated by the idea and everything. And uh, we stepped in. Um, yeah, I have, uh, I have a project. It's also related to cryptocurrency with the, with the app and everything. So uh, we stepped in in a complete, I stepped in. I did it really alone. I mean, at this time, so after 2000, uh, I was not really, let's say, motivated to sit in the studio every day for 10 hours. You cannot do this one day. And I think this is the only way it works. If you want to be successful in a music business, you have to invest your life in it. And, uh, you know, at kids, and everything so uh, i i slow down a little bit and uh, yeah i find cryptocurrencies and a lot of projects around around this and i'm still there in these days so music is still one of my biggest passions but uh it's not part of my life anymore you know i mean as i said sort of during this interview you've always made amazing astounding business decisions from from the moment you started even you know, stepping out of the omen, selling Logic Records, uh, putting the, the, the multimedia company on the, uh, on the stock market. Um, and you seem to have made really fantastic business decisions along the way that many people who worked in the music industry uh, haven't. Um, why do you think you've been the person to be able to do that? What, what is it that you have that others don't? Yeah, I think it's a combination of um, to, to be very logical and to be creative at the same time. Because to run business means you have to be creative. This is very important. You know, and you have, and I think the most important thing is you have to go for something. This is what I have learned in a very early time that you have a vision and you have to go for the vision. You cannot go for five visions. This is what a lot of people do. They like this, they like that, and like that. I always 
concentrated on one thing and I was going for it for a long time. And then one day I changed. I went away, I did something new, you know, but I think it's basically, it's the challenge that you, and we always did new things. You know what I mean? I think this is what triggers me. I, I'm, you know, I don't want to do things that are, that are done before. And when we start to do music, we used tools in a way nobody used it before. Sequencers, synthesizers, all the combinations, what we did. You know, I mean, people did it before, but always they came in the 80s to us and said, your sound is the best. You have the best sound. You know, and we said, yeah, because we, you know, we work day and night and we are trying to find new things. You know, and this is, I think, what, what drives me my whole life. I'm interested to find new things. Did you keep the sequences and the equipment from your first studio? Did you keep that? And what is it? Yeah. <laughs> Where is it? We have, we have, we have a big uh, warehouse where we have, I think, the very first computer, the very first synthesizer, the, the, the very first uh, sampler. Everything is there. Luca has a nice collection of Moog synthesizers. He has even some uh, Moog synthesizers Mr. Moog did for him personally. You know, and we have all the... They, I, I have also their uh, 25,000 records. I mean, almost 10,000 from Omen. You know, all these records. Uh, at this time, they made sometimes just 500 records. And then next, one week later, we did not play the record anymore because there was three new ones, you know, we played. So we have a big collection. And in this, in this um, warehouse, yeah, when I came there with my kids, when they were small, they had a lot of fun there. You know, they find, they find out that records have two sides. <laughs> this is so funny that some kid takes the record and says, oh, it has two sides. Because if you have a CD, you don't have two sides, you know. So uh, really interesting, you know, to, to go there and to have a journey from, uh, we even have a 24 track there, you know, from, from Telefunken. It was a, it's, a, it's a huge machine and nobody knows in these days what it is. People look at it and say, what is it for? What is it? I said, it's a tape machine, 24 tracks. <laughs> you know, we recorded with this thing, our music. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Could you live from the power easily for the rest of your life? Oh, the yes. I think also my grandkids and grandkids can live from this song. Yeah, it, it's a difference. Uh, it's because it's, it's, a, it's an advertising song. You know, it, the difference is if you have a big hit, you have a dynamic and then it goes down and down and down. We are lucky with Rhythm as a Dancer because every five, six years, some big artists discover the song and suddenly we are surprised that we get, uh, yeah, we win some prizes or something. We had the last big one was uh, Jeremiah, Don't Tell Him. They covered Rhythm as a Dancer and suddenly I get a call from ASCAP that I have won two ASCAP awards. I say, for what song? Because I have forget about that we gave them the permission for this song. And then they said, yeah, you have the most played radio song in America this year. And I said, oh, nice. <laughs> you know, and yeah, this is, this is what I said. But normally, uh, most of the artists, they have a big hit. 
and then it goes down slowly, slowly, slowly. And then they have some button, you know, but this music is still going on. I think we have every year, we have about 150 million uh, Spotify streams with music where people don't even know how they, how the, the band looks. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, it's, it, it, if you, if you say people snap, most of the people don't know what it is, but if they hear the music, everybody knows it. You, you mentioned that, you know, your drive shifted in, you know, but it's always been in developing new things and, you know, from new sounds to it, where you are now with uh, cryptocurrency. Um, where is fulfillment for you? For what? Fulfillment. Where does fulfillment come for you as a human being? How, how are you fulfilled? Challenge. To be challenged. You know, this is for me something uh, what, what really gives me so much uh, energy and fulfills what I'm looking for. You know, even I didn't know before what I'm looking for. But if, it's, if, if some things are really a challenge, and uh, like I said, when, when I started with cryptocurrency, I had, you cannot go, you cannot go to internet and Google, you cannot ask people. Nobody had any idea what it is. So I had to find out everything by myself. I had to, I, I, I remember I run hundreds of tries to mine a Bitcoin and it was never working. It never worked. I don't know what I did. And one day, suddenly I saw the numbers rolling and I said, Foop, it works. I'm mining Bitcoin. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I had to find out everything by myself. And that's it for part two of the Mikhail Monzing from Snap story. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow, support or connect to me on Instagram. See you next time.